The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, I'm Clark Ching, and you're listening to the Agile Uprising Podcast. Greetings and welcome to another edition of the Agile Uprising Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Hersko, and jeez, uh, I'm off to a rough start already, and it's during the daytime. So uh, what you are listening to is the first episode in a new series we're kicking off, which is called The Talk Assance. So most of you are familiar with Ellie Goldratt's work, but some of you aren't. So what we're going to be doing over the next couple episodes is we're going to be interviewing a lot of the prime thinkers and movers in the theory of constraints space. Uh, and it is a great, great pleasure of mine to introduce our first guest for this week's episode, the bottleneck guy, Clark Ching. Clark, thank you for joining us. Ah, oh, hello. It's lovely to be talking to you. <laughs> and Likewise. everyone else. Hello. <laughs> so Clark, um, before we go into all your body of work, which is highly impressive, for those that may have not heard of you, um, can you just give us a little bit about yourself, a quick bio description? Okay, uh, so I'm Clark Ching, C-H-I-N-G. Uh, you can track me down on LinkedIn, say hello. Uh, I, I uh, <laughs> never decline a, a, a nice, polite hello. I specialize in the theory of constraints and agile, the, the two together. Uh, I don't do theory constraints in factories. I, I do it in offices. Uh, I do it in um, with, with agile teams, knowledge workers, and I've been doing that for 20 years now. So I uh, stumbled across TOC in the 90s, the mid 90s, uh, and I went really, 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 really deep and wide uh, and, and absorbed as much as I possibly could. And then uh, I tried to forget most of it and distill it down to the stuff that's actually really important. I have been doing Agile since 2003. I was really, really, really lucky that I got to attend Ken Schwaber's first scrum course uh, outside of the States. So the first uh, non-US uh, uh, scrum oh. course, um, I got to do that. And it was just absolutely enlightening. At the time I was doing an MBA, uh, I was three years into an MBA, and uh, I swear I got as much personal value for me, for what I wanted in a life, out of those uh, two or three days uh, with, with Ken uh, than I did out of three, um, three, three and a half years of, of an MBA. Uh, and and, and that, that said, um, Agile was young then, Scrum was young then, and it was a lot, lot simpler. Uh, and there was a lot more freedom uh, back then. So... Uh, I that, that that's that's where I come from. I I, I come from the, the the early days, and I've spent my life, um, really my 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 work, my passion, my purpose, all that kind of good stuff, is to combine the two. It's to get the best of both worlds out of agile, and TOC, and for both of them, I, th I think um, I feel disappointed in both, uh, in in um, uh, for di for different reasons. Agile for me, uh, and we were talking about this before, but it, it feels like this sort of gangly teenager that this kind of finding itself, and it feels like it needs a little bit more growing up. Um, uh, and I don't mean to offend anyone like that. It's just a, a stage of life thing that, you know, that, right. that yep. things go through. And for me, though, Agile feels like an old man uh, that's hobbling around um, uh, and, and not really got direction. And, and that's... Um, that, that the, the main reason for that is that Ellie Goldratt, who was the creator, uh, the father of TOC, that the brains of the outfit, he passed away about 10 years ago. And it kind of lost a little bit of quite a lot of direction. He was the driving force, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. indisputably. He's gone. So my personal um, uh, passion project is to uh, kind of like see if I can resuscitate uh, TOC a bit, spread it around, get more people using it. And the beautiful thing about it is it's actually really, really easy if you don't try and do all of it at once. 
Right, right. And that's why that's why we're kicking off the Takasans here. So so let me start with this, Clark. There, Some of our listeners uh, probably don't are, don't know or aren't really familiar with theory of constraints. So if you if someone turn to you like at a bar somewhere at the pub and says, hey, Clark, what is this theory of constraints thing? How would you right. explain it to them? OK, so the first thing um, I, I would say is, look, sorry about the embarrassingly boring name. Right. Theory of constraints. <laughs> but it, it comes from a scientist in the 70s, Ellie Goldratt, he was a guy who was, he was studying the flow of liquids uh, from a physics point of view. So he approached everything as a scientific view of, of business. And he did what a good scientist would do, to say it's the theory of constraints. But really, we're 40, nearly, nearly 50 years later, um, and we are now not doing the theory of constraints. Well, we, no, we are, but we're practicing it. So, so, so we are doing it. And, and what it boils down to, if you just want to know what the, the, the essence of it is, and now people can't see me do this here, but I have, as one of my props I use for training, I have uh, an hourglass. Except I think it's a three-minute egg timer. And if you think of a system where stuff flows from the top uh, uh, and uh, through um, a system and then at the bottom, you know, a flow system, an operational system. Uh, it could be a factory, it could be a hospital, it could be a software development team, it could be an entire organization made up of software developers. Uh, at one point in the egg timer, there's this narrow point. It's, it's the constraint, it's the bit that constrains or limits the flow of whatever you're working on through the system. Um, and common language, we call that the bottleneck. So it, it, um, we, when TOC started, it was it was bottleneck management. And then Ellie got quite, uh, um, he, he got a lot of press. He got a lot of success. He wrote a book that took off called The Goal. Uh, and um, he sold millions and millions of copies of that. Um, and, and when this happened, he maybe got a little bit self-important or maybe he thought, no, actually, I have a genuine science here, the science of business, actually, which is what I think was going on in his head. And the bottleneck word became constraint, um, sounds more fancy, and he put theory of in front of it. So, so now if someone came up to me in a bar and asked me that and I gave that long thing, they would soon walk away, I think. Um, if, if you want the short version of that, um, in practical terms, it's about finding the one thing right now that's limiting you and then figuring out um, how to manage it so it limits you less. Brilliant. And that's brilliant. It's brilliant. And it's, and it's highly applicable. And so, so now we're going to go into, I'd like to go into the books that you've written. So you and I were talking before we started recording that one of the, one of the difficulties with, with suggesting the goal to people right? Is it's, especially software professionals, software engineers, it's based on manufacturing. And there's a very, there's a very, there's a cognitive um, wall there where a lot of people have trouble extracting the theory and the lesson from the book because they're thinking hardware, they're thinking something physical, they're thinking something tactile, mm -hmm. right? Manufacturing, whereas software isn't tactile, it can be blown away at a moment's notice. So, I, and I started with your first book and, and for those listeners, if you haven't read the goal, don't pick it up yet. Pick up this book first. And I'm not saying that because Clark is on the because on the episode with me because I, I legitimately read this and I've, I've recommended it to quite a few people. Your first book, Clark, is titled Rolling Rocks Downhill. And I picked it up the, after the first time we talked, blasted mm -hmm. through it in like six hours. And I started emailing people, you got to read this, you got to read this, you got to read this, you got to read this. Hey, remember I told you to read Hanging Fire? Hold that, hold that, read this now, read this now. Now I do this to a lot of people, so they're used to it. <laughs> Um, but this is, it's, it's told in a narrative, which to, it's not nearly as dry as some of the other books that come out in the agile space. And it really is, you're hitting on agile software delivery, you're hitting on theory of constraints, and you're hitting on what amounts to a full-blown agile transformation all at the same time. Mm -hmm. But, it, but it's not, but you don't explicitly start out to say, we're going to cover an agile transformation using theory of constraints. It really is the, as the narrative develops those things become important and they get pulled into the story. Yeah. So, so when, when you write a book like that, it, it, I don't ever recommend anyone doing it because it's actually, it's really hard work to write a, an awful business novel. Um, <laughs> you know, like that, that, and I've read, I've tried to read a few and they read like textbooks um, with no charm, but a, a novel is a, a story. It follows an arc and it's got to, it, it, you've got an engineer story. So it's interesting. 
um, and, and it pulls people through it. Uh, but if you want to weave stuff, uh, all of if you wanted to write a textbook version of um, what you just described there, so if, if I just list them out the things I think that are um, in there, the, the theme. So the obvious one is agile. So in in the story, I needed a, a I needed a story. It um, was kind of based on my real life stuff, but it's much easier to write a fictional um, version of the, the good stuff and the bad stuff. Um, I needed a story where they needed to discover the essence of agile. So the essence of agile is two things. Um, one is deliver in small, high quality, well engineered batches. So so that, that that's that's it. If you're delivering software, um, that that's kind of the secret. Um, the second part of it is that you need to prioritize. Um, and if you don't do that, you can be very, very efficient running a little factory building software. But if you don't prioritize, you could um, make yourself broke. So I needed a setup for that in the story. Um, and I actually based it on a, on a real life uh, project, was, which was one that was going along. Um, what, what people, I don't know, people are familiar with this term. It was a, uh, like a watermelon. It was green on the outside. Yep, um, yep. watermelon project status. Yep, we've yep. <laughs> and red actually on the inside. And it was a disaster. And then I engineered because it's a novel and you have to make it interesting for people. Um, I engineered a disaster, in which case a small upstart competitor uh, has come out and they um, are going to deliver effectively your product because they uh, they stole one of your um, key staff members. Uh, pick their brain, and they're going to deliver a cut-down version of your product that will appeal to 80% uh, of the population. Now, now, we all know that the competitor, why didn't they just start like that um, and, 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 and just build that to start with, this, this big company that's the, you know, in the book? Uh, so they have to go through and figure out effectively how to respond to that on a project that's most of the way through um, and... Uh, and, and, and as they do that, they discover the need for delivering small batches of high quality, well-engineered software, what I call GETS, G-E-T-S, good enough to ship. Um, so they had to discover it. No one, they couldn't go on Ken Schwaber's um, scrum course. They had to discover it for themselves. So, so that's the essence of the story and the most fundamental bit of it. There's other stuff wrapped around it. They had a date, um, they had a deadline uh, so they also had to discover um, how to deliver software projects uh, to a fixed date. Now, I know that's not fashionable amongst a lot of people in the uh, <laughs> agile world, but um, if this thing didn't deliver, uh, then they were in pretty big, big trouble. Their company was um, going to get closed down. And, and I've seen companies that were closed down because they missed dates. I've I, um, seen one company that was a supplier to Apple that missed um, a, a deadline by three weeks uh, and instead of skyrocketing like they should have uh, they, they, they faded away I, I worked a couple of years ago with a, a project which um, was for a big um, government department and they were doing this huge transformation and they realized that the testing was running late um, and that they were going to miss a financial year uh, which um, is really not it's very a good that's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. So dates are really, really important. And by the way, just in that one, uh, in a two and a half hour conversation, we found the, the bottleneck in their process. And I'm, these are their numbers. We went four times faster within a week um, by it's managing amazing. the bottleneck. Yeah. So um, the bottleneck stuff actually works in the real world, not just factories. But you've, you've got the fundamentals of Agile in there, um, the small batches. You've got the prioritization in there. Uh, and then you've got inside your system, you've got a bottleneck. You've got one resource type that uh, everyone else can go faster than it. Um, and if that's the case, they just end up building um, WIP. So they had to slow everyone down, figure out what the bottleneck was and, and manage it. So those are the logistical bits in there um, that are about going faster. Uh, and then there's, there's stuff in there that might not even be obvious about um, finding uh de-risking projects uh, by mm -hmm. pulling the, the scary stuff forward. You know, if you're going to land an aeroplane um, in bad weather, you want to land it at the beginning of the runway where there's plenty of room to cope with things that go wrong. Um, you know, huge benefit of Agile. Yep. That's what we do. These guys discover that. But wrapped up inside it, um, and this, this would be less obvious because it's like a big, big view of it. it it's an approach to transformation um, that's kind of based on the OODA loop um, uh, from uh, 
uh, John Boyd. Yep. Boyd. Yep. Um, but it really is. It, it, it's the, the it, it's what I call agile plus TOC. This thinking of, hey, look, what if we're going to change stuff and we're going to improve stuff, we will find right now the one thing that we need to focus on and we fix that and we don't make it perfect we fix it um enough until a week or two weeks later or three weeks later we go well that's no longer the thing that's limiting us so then we find the next thing and then the next thing right so it's a it's a deliberate um it's a deliberate uh methodology uh based on um actually something that i learned from my mba uh, when, when I started doing it a long time ago, one of the first things that I made us read was a paper about incremental strategy um, and how you actually deliver strategy incrementally, um, even if you might plan it and make it look very straight line and you know, kind of like waterfall-esque, we've figured everything out, you deliver it incrementally. And um, so if you lift Agile up to this very high level and think about how do we do big changes, um, that's it. You find the thing that limits you um, you observe, you orient, um, and then you um, act to make mm-hmm. it better. And then you keep observing until it changes, and then you go find the next thing. Right, because so, it eventually becomes <clears throat> constrained whack-a-mole, where it'll start moving through the system. Once you once you isolate one, optimize yes. it as best you can, You're gonna there's going to be an, a less obvious constraint coming out behind the scenes. And that makes me think, Clark, I wrote this down when we first talked. Um, so for those of you listeners that don't know, a little bit of inside baseball, we typically do talk to our guests before we have them on the show to show them that we're not absolutely crazy. Clark doesn't know that I am crazy, but that's fine. We'll hide that. I'm um, not convinced. <laughs> you had a one-liner where I, I, you had two one-liners back-to-back that I actually wrote down. I stuck on a post-it. Yeah. Your first one-liner was, we should always think about placing the bottleneck where it should be. And your yes. second one-liner was, and, and it's relevant to this Agile and Talk combination, if you think about it, we want our developers to be the bottleneck. Our yes. software engineers should be our bottleneck. And I said that to somebody offhand in a different conversation, and they kind of looked at me crazy. But you could see the gears go where they were mm. starting to think about it, and they go, well, if – I hate to use the term resource, but the developers are our most um, expensive resource, right? Yes. Um, yep. And we need them they're, – they're vital to the success of our program, project, what have you. Um, you don't want to – you know, we talk about whip limits, we talk about multitasking, you don't want to burn them out, make them go crazy. You want them operating at that, the, you know, the drum, you want them operating at a pace where it's repeatable, it's not going to kill them, and they can flow work through a system. So I said this to this guy, and you could see in the WebEx, like his gears were kind of grinding, and then all of a sudden his eyes sort of lightened because he, he made sense. And that is never something I'd ever heard anybody say before. But for those listeners, if you think about it, right, your constraint should be your development, it shouldn't be your, your strategy. It shouldn't be your, your intake. It shouldn't be, it really shouldn't be your testing. A lot of times we think it's yeah. testing, right? Yep. Put it where it's most expensive where we can get the most out of it. Yep. Can, can I give you an, an, an analogy? Because this sure. one here, it, it really blows people's minds. They go, no, we don't want a bottleneck. And it's like, well, you're going to have a bottleneck. Um, otherwise, you would have infinite capacity. Uh, it, it, it's just reality. It will be a bottleneck um, somewhere in your uh-huh. whole system. And if you draw a, a circle uh, only around your agile team, for instance, and go, ha, here is, is our team. And you, and you put your customer on the outside um, of it and you focus inside the circle. Um, and by customer, I mean internal customer, uh, just as the first step. Um, if you focus inside the team, you, you'll find that the bottleneck is, is usually testing. Um, which means that, um, especially in the early days of Agile, and most of what we're doing uh, over time is trying to spread things out so that developers aren't delayed by by waiting for testing feedback. So, so just just think of it that way. It's simply all um, we we don't. If, if we had a choice of having developers delayed by testing, or put it another way, um, developers who can get really fast, rapid feedback from testers who have plenty of capacity. Uh, and time to do that it's obvious what you want that's a natural mm-hmm. shape that everyone assumes so um developers in that just with those two resource types types of people um you want uh clearly the developer to be the bottleneck or, or we could put a nicer term we could call them the leverage point if we want um uh upstream from that if you then move up, say you have analysts, and then outside your circle that you've, uh, imaginary circle you've drawn around your team, you have customers. 
if, if your internal customers, whatever you call them, product owners, um, uh, I, I, product managers, whatever term you use, you, um, you might call them the customer. I, 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 uh, it doesn't matter. But the, the point is, you want them to have plenty of time. So uh, them and whoever else does upfront work before it actually gets to, to be coded, you want them to have plenty, 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 plenty of capacity to think and not just feel like they have to shove stuff into the developers yep. to keep them yep. busy. And, and if you don't, you end up shoving stuff in to keep them busy. Or um, you look down your list of things you could do, and in your top 20, you find at number 19, uh, a piece of work that will require little um, preparation that you can chuck to the developers and keep them busy um, and, and stop them moaning about not having work to do uh, for six months, and you give them that. So you really want um, the people upstream of the developers to have capacity to think and prepare stuff um, and to nut stuff out so that when you give it to the developers, it's actually really um, well thought through um, stuff. <laughs> and then at the other end, you want to get fast feedback. Uh, a, a, a little bit further along, if you move to the right in this chain, if you've got uh, uh, op operations people, who, whoever, ops, DevOps, whatever mm -hmm. you want to call it, even if that's all automated, uh, you don't necessarily want to um, release all the time because you might well cause a bottleneck um, and, and, and overwhelm people after that, your users, uh, but you want them to have the capacity to uh, release stuff um, in a commercially sensible sort of pace without right. holding everyone up. Right. Uh, the converse of that uh, is that you have developers who aren't the bottleneck, and what you should do if you just read the goal um, and just take, even if you just read my little bottleneck rules book and you just take that little idea um, and go, oh, where's the bottleneck? Um, if you try and slow everyone down so they run at the speed of the bottleneck, um, which makes sense, it's very, very, very hard to do that uh, for more than a short period of time with developers because they will find stuff, they will start stuff, they'll start stuff that's not ready to be worked on that will create rework um, and it will mm -hmm. all create this sort of... Um, vicious cycle of keeping people busy um and and so what i have discovered uh and figured out and it should be once people get the logic really just exceedingly obvious uh is that uh, of all of the types of people that you in, in your um development system the whole system um of all of the people that you actually want to not have too much spare time are the developers you, you'd rather have them time i'm not Absolutely. saying yep Yep, they have time to think and do their job properly, but they're not just sitting around going, oh, okay, I've got nothing to do. How can I keep myself busy? Right, right. I actually had this conversation with someone who was having trouble wrapping their head around the idea of what we're talking about is basically flow efficiency, whereas most yeah. organizations are organized for resource efficiency, keep everybody yes. busy and all the time. And yeah. I had, I was having this conversation with someone who wasn't getting it, and their remark was, well, you know, idle hands are the devil's handiwork. Mm. And I said, oh, we're swapping Grandma one-liners, okay, so I'll counter that with in regards to this conversation, which is germane to this conversation, uh, the road to hell is paved with good intention. Oh, yes. <laughs> and we both kind of chuckled, but you could tell like we were kind of meeting in the middle where the, the, the person I was dealing with was, was starting to realize that, yeah, you know, oh, like you said, oh, number 18 on this list, it'll take me a day to code it. I'll just do it and chuck it into the environment. Then you're breaking builds. Nobody's tested it. it, it, it it's again, it's it's the it's the the butterfly effect. The butterfly flaps his wings, and now you're getting a typhoon in Japan. It's yep. it's what's going to happen. It's a beautiful thing to do if you want to keep everyone busy, though. <laughs> so, um, if you're a uh, a consulting or software company that um, hires out bums on seats, um, I highly recommend not having the developers as your bottleneck um, because you'll be really, really efficient and you won't make much money. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm being sort of cynical and sarcastic there, but if, if you want to keep people busy and, and have them billable uh, and have walk around and see lots and lots of activity, uh, much of which is doing unnecessary rework or, or busy work, um, yeah, uh, just make sure you don't have your customer uh, um, um, uh, have them as a bottleneck so that they don't get enough time to give good, good input. And then you'll just get everyone fantastically busy, like we did in the old days with Waterfall, uh, doing big, long rework phrases, except we'll call it iteration mm -hmm. and say that it's a good thing. But, but it's not a good thing if it's preventable. So um, Granny's old one or Granddad's uh, one-liner about uh, 
measure twice, cut once. Yep. Um, uh, stitch in time saves nine. Um, <laughs> having time to do the prep up front and focusing on the quality. It is, it's what we're really meant to do. I, I, it, and if you look at it and you design, what's the shape of the optimal team? That's it. The developer is, 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 is the, at the bottom of it. And, and I call this the U-shaped team um, because if you were to plot out the relative capacity um, on a chart uh, with each of the rows and you start with the customer, say, and then an analyst or designers or UX people um, next along and then developers, you want to be able to, and then testers on the, the right of them. You want to have a U shape where the bottom of the um, the, the the capacity that you know the, the lowest point, which is where the bottleneck is, is the developers. And if you don't have that, you'll be really, 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 really busy, um, and that might um, make a lot of people happy, uh, but you won't be very productive, and you won't realize right. it. The difference between busy and productive. So um, you you talked about your your other book, The Bottleneck Rules. Um, this is the second one that I read. And the first thing that jumped out at me, Clark, <clears throat> excuse me, was there's the five focusing steps, right, in, mm -hmm. in Ellie's book. And they're kind of long-winded and it's kind of hard to remember. Well, you you put it on its ear and you turn it into the uh, uh, anagram focus, right? Yes. Um, where, where in the typical focusing steps, right, it's you want to identify the complaint, you want to uh, constraint, then you want to exploit it, right, optimize it as best you can. You want to subordinate to it. So like you said, bring everyone down to the pace that the constraint mm -hmm. has. Um, then you talk about uh, elevate, right, which is what you want to upgrade the constraint yeah. and then go back to step one. So you turn it into focus. And I actually wrote that down over here on my whiteboard because I'm like, I'll, I'll remember that much better than I will uh, 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 identify, exploit, support. It doesn't, it, it makes logical sense, but it's not easy to remember. I've been doing and teaching this stuff for 25 years, the TOC stuff. Um, and it was only a few years ago when I started teaching it at, at business school that I, I suddenly realized um, all the students were having trouble remembering um, because they, they, you know, they, they got a lot of stuff to remember. They, the, the second one in Ellie's official thing is exploit. Uh, and the, 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 the fourth one is elevate. Um, and, and, and they would have trouble remembering them uh, because they, they, they don't translate to words. Like exploit is what? Um, uh, you think child labor. Like you think all sorts do. of like horrible things on the news. with exploit. Yeah, I'm thinking, yeah. hey, that's good if you want cheap shoes. Um, thank you, Nike. <laughs> Um, I hope Nike doesn't sponsor you guys. Wouldn't that be embarrassing? <laughs> no, no, the corporate sponsors ran from us, I think, episode six. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah though, that, that exploit and subordinate to me aren't nice words. Um, and I know now that I've gone ahead and had a look in the dictionary, um, I, I understand that they have the, the negative meanings that, 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 mm -hmm. that immediately come to me, but they actually have proper dictionary definitions. And that's where Ellie Goldrack came from. He um, spoke Hebrew, uh, English was um, one of his second languages. Uh, and so he picked words that actually had a correct dictionary meaning, um, but they don't really roll off the tongue. And, and there's another bit about his, his five focusing steps is that they, they were meant to be very precise, but they're actually really ambiguous. Um, there are two different, uh, and I won't go into it, um, there are two quite different um, understandings of the meaning subordinate uh, in the TOC community. Um, and, and it's just not really, uh, I, I, it's, it's good if you know it and you memorized it. So I, I just come up with something easier. So, so focus, find. So, so find your bottleneck, right? Um, mm -hmm. And then you go, oh, I found a bottleneck. What do I do next? Oh, optimize it. Right, okay, cool. And then I've got three C's in there for focus. Um, you, you want to do uh, coordinate around it. Okay, all right. And, and the book's got lots of little examples to make clear what that is. Then you want to collaborate with each other, um, which is really important if you're working in knowledge work, less important um, if you're doing TOCs or, or lean or, or whatever in, in say a factory. Um, you don't want the machines getting up and going talking to each other. Um, and helping each other. Um, so collaborating is, is really a bit of magic. I think that the focus formula adds in there that comes from my, um, my, my living in, 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 the, in the agile world as well. And then curate is like this one that um, is effectively uh, uh, cu curate, um, a curator in a museum. A mm -hmm. curator in a museum has a limited amount of space. In the museum, they actually, their bottleneck is the um, the amount of public display space they have. 
So they have to carefully curate what they mm. take from their storage facilities and, and put out there. And that's something that um, Agile makes easier because we can prioritize. I, I think there's a whole lot of stuff though that you can do um, uh, up above, higher level for this, um, above just looking at developing what's next on a backlog to carefully curate what you put through your process. Um, and so just to make that one really clear so that people um, in a software world get it, uh, if your bottleneck was testing, say, um, you would cure, and then you had one piece of work came in and you looked at it and there were two different design solutions uh, and one required a lot of testing work, but very little development work. And the other one was flipped around the other way um, then, then you would want to choose the design that made the most sense for where your bottleneck is. Mm -hmm. And you've got to be careful how you do that. If you just do it blindly as a calculation, um, uh, you can end up uh, causing all sorts of bad things. But if you do it with judgment, which is what we're here for, we, you know, we, we, we have brains, then the curation is really, really, really magical. And, and it's one of those things that, um, that, that I think... We, we need to pay more attention. And I actually feel guilty because it fits in the middle of it and it is the right place in that formula, um, but it, it actually requires to sit around the whole, the whole mm, process. Mm. And then the last bit is if, if you're going to upgrade, um, yeah, oh my goodness, my, um, I, in fact, I worked with the government department a, a, a while ago and I wasn't part of this project, but um, uh, they had in all of their uh, small towns and cities, uh, they had these drop-in centers where you could come visit and they had these old, uh, really poor performing um, PCs. So first off, they, they go, oh, gosh, this is slowing everyone down enormously. Look at the productivity. The, this, our entire organization uh, really is limited in the amount of service we can do because they've all got these clunky old PCs um, with small monitors on them. So well, what we'll do to start with is we'll upgrade the monitors which is it's funny, they gave them two monitors and, and, it, and it just meant that the efficiency of the people working on it um, um, sh shot up. And then they upgraded the, the, the hardware of the PCs on their desk. Um, and suddenly the efficiency of the people using them uh, just really, really shot up. And that was the, 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 um, the U in focus, which is upgrade. And, and the last bit, which is just really important, really, really, really important, is that in, in the five focusing steps, um, when, when Ali wrote the goal, he it was early stages for TOC. And when you go deep into it, you, you do realize what we're talking about before. You actually want to think strategically. Um, if you come in and you need a rescue situation, uh, you come in and you go, oh, so, so like, like um, if I take that um, government department one with that I was talking about with crossing over the, the financial mm -hmm. year, you come in and you go, wow, okay. Um, we've got 120 testers over there that they've got working. This wasn't an agile one. They just called me in to help fix it. Uh, they've got 120 testers over there. Ding, ding, ding. Oh, my goodness. Um, this is a disaster. Let's find the bottleneck where it is now. Don't think strategically. Just get it, tame it, um, and then go faster. So if you look at a book like The Goal, that's what they did. If you look at my Rolling Rocks Downhill, it was an emergency, and that's what they did. Once you move beyond emergency, you want to start thinking strategically. Yeah. So, so the last step is um, is S for focus and focus, and it's um, start again strategically, uh, and that involves thinking about okay, um, where do I want the bottleneck to move to, or do I want to keep it in the same place? Because if you do, you, um, you if you've already got it where you strategically want it, you need need to protect it. So there's mm -hmm. a whole lot of um, uh, stuff in there but it, it's so I think people listening to this might go whoa there, there's a lot of stuff there but it's actually really simple find your bottleneck um, optimize it um, use your common sense to uh, just uh, work together which is collaborate um, to coordinate better um, and then um, stop and then um, uh, have a little bit of a think about how you can do things better and <clears throat> when you talk about uh, have a have a bit of a think, right? You you actually in the book you talk about some simple suggestions to help find the bottleneck. And the one that jumped out at me is is maybe it's because I'm a pessimist. I don't know. I'm a glass. Uh, no. Uh, what is it? An optimist? This glass is half full. Pessimist? The glass is half empty. The realist is the one going. I think that glass is full of pee. Um, yep. The step four. 
is you talk about once you think you've found your bottleneck, try and prove yourself wrong. Mm. So that's the whole, um, don't just blindly assume that, oh, I know what it is. It's definitely my testers. Well, well, maybe it isn't. And, and this, this now that we're sitting here talking is especially relevant to me because I just finished um, Melissa Perry's Escaping the Bill Trap. Oh, where yeah. she goes, she uses the example where she talks about, she's talking about the client who thinks they know what the customers want. They think they know what the problem mm-hmm. is. But when you do digging, you come to find out that it is something completely different. So yeah. if you think you're right, don't just, don't, you, you think you're right, you don't know you're right. You need to try and prove yourself wrong. And that's where that learning comes out. And one of the things I've so one of the things that I have found that's really, really, really startling as I've got older, um, it, it's this is so obvious, uh, and 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 I, it, it, I think it's obvious. It is to me now. It wasn't for a long time. Is that if you know TOC and you know about bottlenecks and you walk in. Uh, even if you just know enough that bottlenecks exist and you're wandering around and you walk into somewhere where you're working and they don't know where their bottleneck is, then their bottleneck's probably managing them. And many of these symptoms <laughs> that they're seeing will be coming from a nasty little bottleneck that's not being managed. You know, a wild one, I call them in the book. Right. Um, and, and they can't see it because they don't know about bottlenecks. So imagine you walk into a room, two people, um, and you look around and uh, if you've done this enough, uh, uh, when you walk in and I, I walk in, I go, they don't know about the bottleneck. And then, then you go, it's, it's quite likely that a lot of the symptoms and, and things that they're not liking are caused because they don't know about bottlenecks. And so therefore they're not managing this. Uh, the other person that walks in will walk in. If they don't know about it, they'll try and fix the symptoms in a different way. And, and sometimes um, uh, like l- limiting whip. For instance, you know, if you get there, come up, let's limit whip, put up a visual board. That's exactly the same um, as you would do with a TOC thing. And they'll get partway there. But if they still don't know their bottleneck, uh, where it is, they will often then put in the fundamentals of sort of agile stuff, get things sorted. Um, but then they'll still have busyness going on um, uh, that's come because they, they've got a bottleneck and they're, they're not managing it. Busyness, um, busy work and, and, and rework. So, so that's why I mentioned in the book that um, I have a horrible bias now come from uh, a lot of <laughs> experience of coming in and seeing this pattern, but I have to prove myself wrong because um, uh, for, for two reasons. One, one is if you're trying to help people and, and you know the solution the moment you walk in, um, and, and often you do. You, you know, you walk in, you go, oh, I can see from the board. Look at a bottleneck there. It's, just, it's obvious. <laughs> right, right. Um, but if you make that leap to that conclusion and tell them, they'll think you're a smart ass and not listen to them. So you have to spend a bit of time um, building relationships with people, um, testing out the theory, trying to see if there's other reasons and not just leap to, to the really quick solution. Um, right. Otherwise, it's likely to get re- rejected. Uh, so that, that I think that maybe comes with just a, a, a bit of age and wisdom of previously. <laughs> right, the wisdom. <laughs> yeah yeah you don't solve problems uh, you solve, solve problems quickly if you don't solve them quickly um <laughs> you have to slow down a little bit um, right. just slow down a little bit and then you'll actually solve them um but if you dive straight in with your great ideas uh it doesn't matter if they're right um often they'll just cause people to react and just go oh, stranger in here telling us how stupid we are <laughs> right well said the human the human piece of it really does add a level of complexity that you just can't we're not gonna be able to get around um, it does. we are we are quickly approaching time but i do want to touch on your your other book um the corkscrew solutions this one uh, again people this is a very quick read um for me this kind of blew my mind and you use the example of um you use churchill as an example and you talk about what makes good leaders. And, and the setup for those listeners is uh, Churchill, and I believe he was Secretary of Defense in World War I. Mm-hmm. And he, they, he was approached to say, what do we do? Do we continue with our ships that, you, that utilize coal because we have them? Or do we use the new ships that run on oil, gasoline? And, the, and his choice was, you know, coal is readily available, but it puts us uh, using, basically using last generation technology. Oil is the more is more likely what our opponents are going to use. However, we don't have any way we can't guarantee that supply chain. Yes. And the example you use is you know you it's called the corkscrew bob and the bob sensor best of both worlds. 
And you make the remark that the best leaders find a way to solve for both options. And historically, what did Churchill do? Well, they went to the Middle East and they founded British Petroleum, thereby guaranteeing a, a unlimited supply chain of oil which they can then turn and build the next new gen warships. And we all know how World War I turned out. To hmm. me, Clark, that was kind of mind blowing, right? When you said the best leaders, and you think about the leaders that we write books about, right? Are the ones that take these two opposing um, issues where it seems like there's no way to solve for both of them and they find a way to do it. Yeah, and, and that's it. And so they don't try, uh, can I give you another example? Sure, uh, sure. Just, just in case anyone's listening, and knows more about Churchill than I do. He was the um, Lord of the Admiralty. Admiralty, um, that was it. I I, yeah. I took a guess there. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to get Twitter bombed for. Um, <laughs> so let, let's hop countries. Uh, go to the states, right? Um, and, and this is a, sounds like a silly example, but it, it kind of illustrates the same thing. Um, FDR, Franklin Delano Delano Roosevelt. Yep. Right. Um, he was known as. Uh, there, someone described him. Uh, once as a man who thought that the quickest way between point A and point B was a corkscrew. Um, and that, that wasn't meant to be going open a bottle of wine, though that, that was definitely Churchill's approach. Um, mm-hmm. it, it meant that he wouldn't go in a straight line. He would go in a, a corkscrewy shaped. Uh, there'd be a, a, quite a bit of wandering uh, and he'll get to the end and he'll get to point B. Uh, so just I'll give you an illustration of what the, the um, this best of both kind of approach um and, and, and just to give credit um this is ellie goldratt's work introduced me to this at, um the ele- uh, the evaporating cloud cloud uh, yeah and, and i've just taken it and i've just simplified it um so that i've just basically just give, given really simple instructions i, I hope to, to just apply it in the real world the, the feedback i've got from people they're actually apply it in the real world which is um something a lot of people don't haven't done with Ellie's work because uh, it felt kind of a bit mystical. Um, so that was him. The other credit to, to give credit is Roger L. Martin, who's written lots of books and he writes them with big CEOs, big big thinker. He studied this um, the, the, a bunch of uh, very good leaders and um, like exceptionally good leaders, and he discovered that this one thing is that when you're faced with a dilemma that seems impossible to solve. Um, you come up with a third solution um, that, that that gets the best of both worlds. He 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 came up with this and he wrote a, a nice book that wasn't really uh, didn't tell you so much how to do it called the opposable mind. So there's like um, there's two things here, but FDR right? Um, I'd stumbled across this as I was researching the, the title um, Corkscrew Solutions, and he he, he wandered around things um, fastest way from point A to point B was a corkscrew. Now, here's an example. Um, apparently, he was a very, very hard man to tie down to an opinion, which you could imagine uh, was a bit frustrating if you were his speechwriter. So um, he got a speechwriter, and the speechwriters go, I know what this guy's like. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to him, and I'm going to spend some time up front, do some decent preparation, get his head around this, and figure out... Um, and what the best, what, what um, FDR's position is on this thing before he does the speech. So he goes, talks to him, and FDR says, well, I don't really know. I'm not sure. Um, how about, there's two obvious positions here. How about you go and write a paper on position A and a paper on position B? Um, uh, in, you know, like um, debating teams, they're, they're very good at this. Take a position, argue for it. So go write the paper there, go, go write the speech, and then come back to me and I'll pick one. So... He goes away, uh, and it's really clever. He thinks he's outwitted. He's created twice the amount of work, but that's all right. Um, so he sits down, and he uh, writes uh, a speech A, and then he writes speech B. Then he comes back, sits down with FDR, and he apparently sits there, and he reads through. Uh-huh, uh-huh, mm, oh, I like that. Mm, very good. Oh, good point, good point. Um, that's speech one. He puts it to a side, then he gets and does the same with speech B, and, and then he finishes, and he says... You know, I like both of those. They're both very well written, well done, really, really well argued. Now, what I would like you to do is take these two papers, uh, which don't forget, um, they argue for opposing positions mm-hmm. and um, combine them. And that was his instruction. <laughs> so he effectively said, go away, get the best of both worlds out of these papers, and, and that will be my solution. So that's, that, that, that's the, the key thing. If you've got two positions figure out what you get out of both positions 
um, and then figure out how to get both of those mm -hmm. uh, things. It's the best of both worlds. So the positions, they and, and then you know when you've sorted it, when the solution that you um, come up with that gets the best out of both, uh, it, it doesn't conflict. And it's likely to can, um, combine uh, bits of both um, solutions. So, for instance, uh, uh, Churchill didn't stop having coal-powered ships, but he made sure that he secured the oil supply um, for the oil-powered ships. Yes. He had the best of the both. And then once he did that, um, there was no conflict. He could have both types of ships and get the best out of both of them. It's, it's brilliant. And that's, that's, I went back to that three or four times because um, like most middle-aged men, I fell into that World War II history buff phase of my <laughs> life. You know, um, I'm out of the craft beer phase. I'm into like World War II. And I just happened to read Corkster Solutions while I was working through a book on, um, I think it was Anzio or, or Gallipoli. It was a Gallipoli. Oh, and, um, and I was really, I was thinking about he really did find a way to solve, you know, you have the, you have the military in one ear, the Navy saying, well, we already have coal ships. Let's use the coal ships. Mm. We can get an advantage. And you have the other side, like, you know, who would be like the McDonnell Douglas's general electric saying, you really need to go to this new technology. It'll really give you a leg mm. up. And he mm -hmm. found a way to, to brilliantly combine the two. But um, I, I, I know we're cool. You run out of time for getting into your morning. Um, uh, I will tell everybody, and I'm going to have links in the, in the show notes, but look into that evaporating cloud diagram. It really does make you think. Um, and it makes you think from the ground up, which is really, really helpful. And I've started to use it at work and I'm getting some good results out of it because it's at least, at least getting people to have the dialogue is the most important thing. When you're doing it as a group and you're, you're blocking it's, things out, you're communicating. It's incredible. Uh, I, I, honestly, if, if I had to go, it wouldn't be much use maybe on a desert island uh, so, so much because um, uh, I wouldn't have other people and I would only, <laughs> wouldn't have other problems so much. But my desert island tools would be, Look, let me see what a bottleneck is. Um, let me understand that uh, doing things in small batches uh, is a really clever way um, to achieve things. And uh, let me understand the idea of getting the best of both worlds, just, just using this simple, simple diagram. Uh, it, it just makes, I, I've got um, uh, a, a guy in the US Air Force has been using it and he, and he, and he used it to come up, um, not come up with, but um, make a pitch to sell a, a, a technology um, solution. Uh, if you look at Pixar, that they resolve the, the conflict where you get um, adults uh, and kids going to a family movie, want to see a different type of movie. So rather than having um, both sides sitting in a movie that, um, that they didn't like mm -hmm. um, or, or creating winners and losers, they, 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 they use that um, tension, that dilemma, uh, and they used it to go, huh, what if we could get a type of movie that was great for kids and great for, for adults? What would we have to do? Uh, and they created a whole new um, industry. <laughs> Amazing. And, it really is amazing. Yeah, it, it's um, when you get impossible situations um, that this is just one way out of it, but it, it's, it's a really easy way and surprisingly easy to do. It's just that no one ever taught us to do it. Um, and, and I will leave you with this, Clark. The other book I just picked up was um, an article about the Grafton and the Invercloud on Auckland Island. So this is right in your area of the world. Um, there was back in, I think it was 1865, something like that. Um, mm -hmm. Two ships crashed on Auckland Island on opposite ends. Mm -hmm. um, one is the Grafton and one is the Invercloud, Invercold, uh, something English. Right. Um, the, one, the one crew resorts to cannibalism and they start starving and they don't make it off the island. Whereas the other crew, they find a way to build a forge and they make boats and they build homes and they actually get off the island. So to your uh, point about, you know, you have um, in that situation, they found the solution that solved for everything. Whereas the other team team, for lack of a better term, I mean, it's human lives yes. involved, did it, um, which I, and I started that because I thought it was kind of fascinating how different types yeah. of people in the same scenario will choose different solutions for right, yep. wrong. And then the results play themselves out. And a lot of us were trained to argue and take one side. Um, uh, and we often do that when we're actually on the same side. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yep. So, so the, get the on whole the same false side. psychotomy. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
Lovely. Oh, thank you. I like that. <laughs> well, uh, and with that, I'm going to take us out of here, Clark, because we're, we're at time. Um, so for our listeners that want to find you, they want to get more information. For those listeners, I'm going to put uh, generous notes for uh, links to all of Clark's books, his website. Clark, if somebody wants to engage with you, they want to ask you some questions, uh, maybe they want to bring on, where do they find you? Right. Well, you could just come to clarkching.com. Um, but actually, the, the best place to find me is it's just LinkedIn. Um, come find me on, on LinkedIn. Um, uh, I'm very easy to find. There's a Canadian dentist called Clark Ching. Um, it's not that one. Okay. <laughs> come come not find me. Canadian dentist. <laughs> and if anyone would like a, 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 in a free copy of the bottleneck rules, um, uh, uh, it, it, it's free. Um, find me on LinkedIn um, and, and just, just connect up and just ask me. And I'll very happily uh send your pdf version for that J- just so people know um it, it, it's not rubbish it's not giving away just some some freebie mm-hmm. it, it, it was it was the number two best-selling amazon leadership book for a few days it's been in the guardian it's been in the spectator um it, it's a it's a it's a, a a very good way to spend an hour and a half a very useful yeah, for the rest of your life. agreed Agreed. And 100%. I would love for anyone to do that um, and, and just get a, get a freebie copy. So uh, go to share, S-H-A-R-E dot T-O-C dot guide, G-U-I-D-E, um, or find me on LinkedIn and, and message me. Um, and I'm very happy to, to send you uh, a, a PDF version of that just to have a read. Uh, it, it's changed a few lives, genuinely. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Excellent. So, uh, Clark, on behalf of myself and the listeners, I want to thank you for taking your time to sit with us. On behalf of Clark and myself, I want to thank all of you listeners for tuning in once again. Uh, Again, if you enjoyed what you heard, give us a review, a rating, um, a response on iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast listening platform of choice. It does help other listeners find us. Uh, I also would be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to the artist Krebs and Machine Man Records for providing free of charge our outro music, which now means YouTube doesn't take us down for copyright infringement. Uh, lastly, if you want to get in on the conversation, we have a very, very vibrant Discord server. No, it's not just for gaming anymore. Uh, we have a lot of conversation going on. There's a lot of actual projects that the Agile Uprising is running. We have some initiatives coming up. So if you're interested, please hop on and get in the dialogue, get in the conversation. We would love to have you. So once again, I want to thank Clark. And until next time, this is the Agile Uprising podcast signing out.